Listen to this reading from Numbers. So they went up and spied out of the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rehobo, near Labeth Hamath. They went up into the Negev and came up to Hebron. And Ahamai, Shashai, and Talmai, the Anakites, were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And they came to the Wadi Eshkol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes. And they carried it on a pole between the two of them. They also brought some pomegranates and figs. That place was called Wadi Eshkol because of the cluster that the Israelites cut down from there. At the end of the 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the Israelites in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to this land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Yet the people who live in the land are strong, and the towns are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the land of the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone down from him said, we are not able to go against this people, for they are stronger than we. So they brought to the Israelites an unfavorable report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land that we have gone through as spies is the land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great size. There we saw the Nephilim, the Anakites come from the Nephilim, and to ourselves we seem like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee and to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to him, to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always and to the end of the age. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we, uh, we think on a text of Scripture that's somewhat familiar to many of us, we ask that you would help us to know how we might apply it and what we might do with this, how we might live beneath its authority and its words, its revelation. Would you meet us, Father, Son, and Spirit, as we reflect together this morning? In Jesus' name, uh, amen. So I want to thank everyone that's uh, joined in in person today, right? It's, it's, this is one of the unique things we're beginning to do is have uh, individuals come back into the building and we're sort of living within the limits that Philadelphia sets for us of, at 25. We're hoping that number changes uh, sometime soon. But I want to thank you for venturing out and being a part uh, of the worship in the space with us. It's just so helpful to hear a few thanks be to God's, you know, as we go through the liturgy together. So I want to think 
back to the beginning of this series in the wilderness uh, that started now, I think, five weeks ago. Um, I was down in Nashville at the time uh, with Tucker. It was just after his, uh, his injury. We were about a week into that injury, I believe. So I was at Vanderbilt Medical Center, and that morning I listened to the sermon after Chris had preached it. I don't remember when I tuned in, but I did tune in. And I want to remind you of something that Chris said in those early sort of words there. And it was just this sort of observation about what life in the wilderness is about and what it teaches us. And one of the principal things it teaches us is about home. What does it mean for us to be at home in the land? And we all feel like that sense of hominess has been ripped out from under us in some ways, ironically, even though we're in our homes more than ever before, because the familiarity of life has been taken away. The normalcy of life has been taken away. And so here I was in a moment when not only was it the normalcy of ordinary life at a pandemic sort of erased, but all of a sudden we're dealing with a catastrophic injury uh, within our family. It was a very challenging moment, and those words home is when I am with you, home is when I am with the Lord, began to sort of sit with me a little bit differently on that particular Sunday and subsequent Sundays. What does it mean for God to show up in our lives, in our circumstances? Whatever those circumstances are, the moment of a pandemic, this moment of political anxiety, this moment of racial reckoning, this moment of, this moment of, fill in the blank your personal news, your personal relationships, the challenges that you face inside of these spaces of life. What does it mean for you to experience an at-homeness with God in whatever circumstance you're facing this morning or have come through this past week? It's a beautiful reminder, and it's really the lesson of the wilderness. It's the lesson that comes back over and over again, because whether we're looking at all of these subsequent moments of complaint, right, the rabble sort of stirring up the crowd, or whether it's, you know, they want food different from manna, or whether it's uh, Moses reaching a point of uncertainty about his own leadership, or whether it's, uh, you know, Miriam and Aaron, as we saw last week, weary of Moses' leadership, on and on, we're hitting those sort of boundary marks in which we're all saying something's not enough. Maybe it's me, maybe it's the leader out in front of us, maybe it's the circumstances, maybe it's the food, whatever. Maybe it's your health. What does it look like in those moments to discover the enoughness of God in the midst of that deprivation? Whatever it is, And that's the story of the wilderness, and it's the lesson that Israel is invited to learn over and over and over again as a part of their formation as God's people. And it is the story that the practices, rather, that you and I are invited to enter into and similarly learn of God's nearness. Now, today's story takes us right up to the sort of boundary lines of the promised land, this land that God has promised his people. And it's a moment when Moses sends the best and the the mightiest men of Israel sort of into the land as spies to evaluate what's there and come back with a report. Now, I want to say this right off at the very front of this, is that we're inching, inching, right, very close to huge questions that linger in our mind or at least surface when we come to these types of biblical texts, namely about what do we do with violence in the Old Testament? How do we think about these warring moments or potential warring moments. We're not there yet, 
but we're dangerously close to those kinds of questions. And so I just wanna to gesture towards some scholars that I think you might enjoy reading if those are questions that you have when you read a text like this. I'm gonna point you first of all to a professor of mine, Trimper Longman, he had a book that came out this past year, or about a year ago actually, called Confronting Old Testament Controversies. It's an excellent book, it surveys a lot of perspectives on how many controversial things coming out of the Old Testament, the Hebrew scripture, sort of surface in our day, and he covers how a variety of scholars think about it. I think it's informative and helpful. His student, Pete N., some of you are familiar with Pete's work and his Bible for, or, for Normal People uh, podcast, I'll refer you there because you'll get a little different tweak on how he thinks about these things, but it's worth listening to and very helpful in many, many ways and raises, I think, very important questions. David Lamb, who is a local scholar, he uh, teaches at, at Missio Seminary, he has a book called God Behaving Badly, a very provocative title, but another book that will sort of give you a slightly differently nuanced sort of take on how scholars are thinking about some of these more challenging texts. But today the question is really how do we sort of take data and interpret it? Because that's really what's happening in this particular moment of inquiry in the land as the spies go out. They bring back facts, data points that the people of God, the leadership of God's people might actually use in discerning some next step of faith. How do you think about data and discernment? And so I want to think about this text along those two lines. And it sort of fits my own sociological background as a qualitative sociologist. I love thinking about data and I love thinking about the stories that we wrap around data points. So data, one word comes to mind immediately and that is the word fruitful. This is a fruitful land in every conceivable way. At least that's how it's reported. Verse 27, it is a land that flows with milk and honey, which is a phrase that drips throughout the scripture as it talks about God's vitality in the land and his faithful blessing of the land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Some of you that are part of City Church remember Cindy Parker and a, a class that she did for us uh, on a theology of place in which she takes that language, that phrase, a land flowing with milk and honey, and she unpacks it in such beautiful and luscious ways that you can't wait to go with her on a trip to the Holy Land. You just want to see it for yourself. And one of the things that she expresses in that place is it's not the idea that you come into this land in which everything is perfect, but actually it's a land fruitful for cultivation. This is a land that's ripe for farming. And it's a land that's ripe for shepherding. And it's a land that's ripe for shepherds and farmers and everybody in between the food chain to interact collaboratively so that the outcome is lush fruitfulness. That's the picture. It's actually, interestingly, sort of a little tidbit of a theology of work is bound up inside of that phrase. And so here in this moment when the giant clusters of grapes are brought out, right, one of the things that the people are meant to experience and understand about this land is what? It's not the wilderness. This is a place where you might thrive. You might thrive vocationally. It's a place where we would thrive together in this space. And that's the picture that Israel is given in this first data point. That's not all. 
There's another piece of data, and it has to do with cities and towns and people, verse uh, 28. Yet the people who live in the land are strong, and the towns are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of the Anak there. Whoa, what is that? These people have built out the land. Imagine the first time you came upon a great city. So I I grew up in the suburbs of Atlanta, Georgia, and I remember the moments when I would, sorry, mom, take my bike and actually ride from the suburbs into the city of Atlanta, and its enormity just flooded me. I remember the first time I took a trip to New York City, and I remember driving across the bridges coming into Philadelphia. You come upon something magnificent. That's something of what they're experiencing in this space. The enormity of these cities, the fortification of these cities, the organization of these towns, and the people, right? These are people that are uh, sort of, they're giants in the land, and these are people that are, they gesture toward the sort of all of the legends and the ideas around these people, the Nephilim, who are mentioned in Genesis chapter 6 as the offsprings of the gods and daughters of men. And we still wonder, what on earth does that mean? And maybe that's just the point that you, you encounter some unexplainable being. The fruitfulness of the land is matched with the extraordinary and almost mythological strength of cities and people. The greatest of fruitfulness and potential, certainly, but the greatest of enemies as well. So what would you make of the data as you're doing that SWOT analysis in behalf, right, of the people of Israel? You've been charged. You went and you did the data collection, and now you've brought back these facts. How would you aid in the discernment of what to do next? Where would you go? How would you make sense of these data points for making some next step as God's people. So two stories, two interpretations, two stories and sets of words wrapped around the data points, the same data points. One is a story of fear rooted in fear and one is a story rooted in faith. So let's think about these. The majority lean into this space of fear because they begin to see that the promise of God about the land and about their life in the land is overwhelmed by the challenges and the risk of being in that land, right? So relative to their relative strength, in other words, to these giants is nothing, right? What is the language they use? They say we were like grasshoppers in our own eyes and the eyes of other people. Uh, Chris and I were talking about this in the office this past week, and Chris said, yeah, it's probably a little bit more like what we see around our city right now, lanternflies. Have you seen that? And have you seen the ritual of individual? It's, a, it's really quite interesting when you're walking in the streets of the Philadelphia, and you immediately see the person in front of you stomping, and you know what they're doing. They saw a lanternfly. How many did you stomp out today? How many will you stomp out today? But we know one thing, that the moment you see them, what are you supposed to do? You stomp it out of existence. It seems like a futile battle, but that's what we're doing. But that's what's happening in the mind of the spies as they think about the meaning of the data. These mighty men, right? We're like lanternflies. We're just going to be stomped out. And it's not just that. They go on and add one other piece of interpretive 
spin, and that is that this land, what, it devours its own. In other words, we may come into the land and we may take the land and maybe we experience a little bit of fruitfulness, but guess what? It's one war after another war after another war. We will be devoured. This land devours its own. So there's your SWOT analysis. The weaknesses and the threats, they outweigh the strengths and the opportunities. No promise in their imagination can take root in that land. It's not worth the cost of going. So everybody's working with the same data points, but Caleb and Joshua go to a very different storyline. They offer a very different interpretation of what they ought to do in terms of their discernment, and it's rooted in their, their perspective of faith. Verse 30, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Now, you know, the first time you sort of read that sentence, maybe the people that pop up in your mind are all of the positive thinkers that you know, right? You know them, right? You know individuals who never met a change they weren't interested in, who never met a vision they didn't like, right? They're just eager to go. It's one change after another. And is that who they are? I don't think so. I don't think that's what's going on here at all. I think rather these are men and maybe even a portion of the community as a whole who are being formed in the wilderness for a different kind of discernment. They're awake to a larger part of the story. They're not just stuck in the trauma of their past, whether that's you know, this experience of transgenerational uh, trauma, right, of slavery and ethnic, uh, to some degree, ethnic cleansing that would have gone on inside of that space, or at least was attempted in that space, right? They're not just formed by that past, and they're not just formed by sort of whatever awareness they have of their own strengths, but these are individuals who are formed by God's presence. So that the story of their trauma, the story of their present, the story of their wilderness journey is not just the story of those simple data points in that particular set of circumstances. It is also the added data point of God's presence. And that's been the lesson over and over and over again. What has God done for Israel since the deliverance? Well, there's the Red Sea. He parts the waters. People are hungry. He feeds them with manna. People get tired of manna. He feeds them quail. And they need water. And there's water and so on and so forth. God pitches a tent in their very midst that symbolically reminds them, I am near. They see a pillar of cloud. They follow it. They see a pillar of fire. It moves. They follow it. Moses goes up on the mountain. He brings back words from God, law, that feels somewhat overwhelming when you begin to read it. But when you understand the law as God's vision for what life can be like in its fruitfulness in ordinary spaces of human interaction. God is giving them over and over and over again an experience of his nearness, an experience of his rich presence, an experience of his love. Because all along the way, they're complaining, they're griping, they're the, they're the rabble, they're the so on and so forth. But all along the way, amidst their uncertainties, their doubts, their fears, their anxieties, God keeps going with his people. Because the relationship of God's nearness is rooted in grace and love and not our getting it right. 
For Caleb and Joshua, discernment requires one thing, and that is God's movement. God moves, we move. God wants this, we want this. If God goes into the land, we go into the land. And it doesn't matter if our relative strength means we're like grasshoppers or lantern fries. The point is God is with us. His nearness is the defining feature of their reality. So how do we pull the story into our own lives, into our own story as merging churches, into our own lives inside our families or our relationships, our vocational spaces, this pandemic moment, this political moment of anxiety, this moment of racial reckoning? How do we live into a story like this? And the same lessons of God's nearness. When you keep following the movement of God throughout history, the story of Israel lands and is distilled in one person, and that is Jesus. The author of Hebrews will speak of Jesus as the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. The story of faith, God's nearness, now wrapped around the data points of our lives in the person of Jesus. So when you think about the data points of your lives, there's your past six months experience of COVID. There's the things that are happening culturally and politically inside of our own culture that feel anxiety producing. There's your own health diagnosis. There's the reality of your relationships. You know, divorces sometimes rise in a pandemic and there's some indication that marriages are in trouble. Why? Because we're around each other so much. And we see each other differently in this space. The story of our lives, it's included some ups and some downs, it's included places of failure when you've seen some things in your own self that are profoundly disappointing and maybe disappointing to the people that love you most. What would it look like to wrap this story of faith around that? Jesus with you because he loves you the gift of his spirit upon your life, his favor resting on your life, even amidst all of this complicated story of goodness and badness, of adventure and loss. Jesus' own life and words, which everyone that ever experienced him in the pages of the New Testament writings about his life, the Gospels, everyone said of him, he speaks as one having authority. You ever noticed that? In other words, Jesus talked about creation and other human beings as if he wrote the story. Authority, revealing this unique goodness inside of his life, otherwise previously unexperienced, at least not experienced, with the kind of consistency and depth that everyone that ever met, met Jesus experienced it. His authority. And all of this unfolding in the midst of the wilderness of our broken world, in the midst of giants, religious giants in positions of authority, but wanting to stamp him out as if he were a lanternfly, or the political giants wanting to stamp him out as if he were a lanternfly, and almost doing that because they crucified him. The rabble crowd crying, crucify him. Jesus' life was lived in a wilderness space, but he kept loving God and he kept loving neighbor with authority. And mysteriously, God was pulling all of the brokenness of this evil world, of the brokenness of our world, the evil that we can identify in our world, into his own human story in the person of who Jesus was. 
And in his resurrection, God just simply declares that all authority belongs to Jesus truly. In other words, God is saying everything that you experienced of him, this reality about Jesus is the reality that will define now and the future of God's people forever. It's where the world is going. It's the right side of history. That's the picture of the story of Jesus in resurrection. And it doesn't matter if when you and I begin to follow him and we look upon him that we feel ourselves to be grasshoppers or we feel ourselves to be lanternflies. But the truth of the matter is that you are the beloved child of God, beloved son or daughter upon whom his favor rests. And so we are given this opportunity to follow Jesus into this world, spaces of wilderness, and to go proclaiming the truth that God loves us. Our gospel reading invites us, just like the author of Hebrews, to get behind Jesus and his unique authority and goodness, to go wherever you will go in this world with the surprising good news, baptizing and discipling other human beings in the name of this God who is forever with us, who will never leave us or forsake us, and who will get us into the place, ultimately, of a land flowing with milk and honey. So let me just ask you this this morning. What giants do you experience in the land of your life? What are the giants that reduce you in your own imagination to the status of a lanternfly? that leave you afraid, that leave you uncertain about this particular moment. You see, our hope is not that we somehow feel better about ourselves. Oh, I'm not a lanternfly. Our hope is God who says something better about yourself, who loves you, and who is committed to bringing his kingdom and leading us all together to this land flowing with milk and honey. And so we follow him. May God give us grace to hear the words of this text and know how they apply to our lives. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.